Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Tom Cryer, today's host. Today we'll be talking to Professor Scott Cameron about his new book, From Union Halls to the Suburbs, Americans for Democratic Action and the Transformation of Postwar Liberalism, out this November with the University of Massachusetts Press. From Union Halls to the Suburbs traces the history of one of the most prominent liberal organisations in the 20th century United States. In so doing, it reveals how American liberalism shifted away from the working class concerns of the New Deal era and began to cater to the interests of a new suburban professional class. My guest, Professor Scott Cameron, is an assistant professor of history at the University of New Mexico, Valencia campus. In addition to From Union Halls to the Suburbs, Professor Cameron has published in the Michigan Historical Review, Peace and Change, the 60s, and the Southern Historian. He received his PhD from Trinity College Dublin in 2016 and taught at Adrian College in Michigan and the University of Toledo in Ohio before taking up his current role in New Mexico. Professor Cameron, welcome to the podcast. For Union Hall's Two Suburbs is the first book-length study of Americans for Democratic Action, the ADA, since 1987. You call the ADA the quintessential representative of post-war American liberalism. Could you start by telling us how you came to study this topic and the ADA? What is the ADA and why does telling its story matter today? Sure. I, I took a pretty roundabout way to studying the Americans for Democratic Action with my earlier work I was looking at this organization called the Congress for Cultural Freedom, which was this network of non-communist left uh, intellectuals in Western Europe, in North America and other parts of the world. It turned out that that group was covertly funded by the CIA, which some of the members knew and, and some didn't. It was quite a shock to, to many when that came out. But that organization, in a lot of ways, was trying to propagate American-style liberalism for Western Europe, for really the world more broadly, in an effort to try to steer intellectuals away from the affinity that many had during the early post-war years with communism. And so that really sparked my interest in what exactly is this nebulous uh, ideology of liberalism, which can mean so many different things in so many different contexts, and has taken a lot of forms within the United States itself. And the, the ADA really is a great way of telling that story and the, the changes that liberalism has gone through. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Um, to kind of start us off then with maybe the historical um, starting point of things, the ADA, particularly as you discuss it in the first two chapters, is firmly rooted in the trajectories and ideas and um, theories of two key public intellectuals, the historian Arthur M. Schlesinger Jr. and the economist John Kenneth Galbraith. Um, it's fair to say both had very high hopes for this organisation. Um, Schlesinger, you quote, in 1947, declaring that the ADA's formation marked, quote, the watershed at which American liberalism began to base itself once again on a solid conception of man and of history. Could you just introduce us to these two figures and perhaps tell us what kind of in their experiences of the New Deal era and World War II led them to be just so concerned about the future of American liberalism? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's definitely a pretty lofty description for a, a group that probably had, I don't know, something like 80 people when it was formed in in 1947 and to think about why they were so concerned about 
the state of American liberalism in the years after World War II, we really have to look at how different American liberalism was at that time from, from the, the form that it's taken in recent decades. Uh, during the years after World War II, there was still the legacy of the popular front, uh, of liberals combining forces with communists to work towards shared progressive goals. There was a concern about a rightward reaction in American politics after World War II. And so for people like Henry Wallace, uh, Franklin Roosevelt's former vice president, who ran for president in, in 1948 on the, the progressive ticket, uh, there, there was this uh, belief that, that liberals needed to join forces with any progressive elements to, to fight this this potential rightward reaction. And so the people that I am looking at, the people who go on to form the Americans for Democratic Action, they had a very different view. Uh, they did not think that you could achieve liberal or progressive ends by joining forces with uh, elements that they saw as illiberal, like the, the Communist Party uh, USA. And so when it comes to uh, Galbraith and Schlesinger in particular, uh, they were really shaped by their experiences during World War II, before World War II, and what's going on in the, the post-war era. So Arthur Schlesinger Jr. was a well-known historian. He was the son of another well-known historian, Arthur Schlesinger Sr. Schlesinger graduated from Harvard, and then during World War II, he served in the Office of Strategic Services, which was the, uh, the precursor to what becomes the CIA after World War II. And while Schlesinger was in the OSS, he doesn't seem to have done much in the way of, of spying or, or intelligence work, but he did use this time to complete his first book, uh, which was the, the Age of Jackson. So his, his book looked at the development of Jacksonian democracy in the United States. It won the Pulitzer Prize in 1946, so it established him as a, as a very prominent historian at really quite uh, a young age. And while it was definitely a rigorously researched and argued book, the age of Jackson looked to the Jacksonian era as the origin point for modern American liberalism. And it definitely expresses his liberal, his post-war liberal politics pretty clearly throughout its, its pages. Galbraith had a background that similarly combined academic and political work. Uh, Galbraith was born in Canada. He completed a PhD in economics at the University of California, Berkeley, before taking a teaching position at Harvard. So both of these major public intellectuals of the post-war era were, were colleagues for, for quite a while at, at Harvard. And shortly after the U.S. entered World War II, Galbraith became the deputy head of the Office of Price Administration, which was one of the agencies set up by the, the Roosevelt administration to set prices for consumer goods. Uh, there was all this money being pumped into the economy uh, for mobilization for the, the war. And so there were a lot of concerns that you would have runaway inflation, that consumer prices would spiral out of control. And so the, the OSS was setting prices, man, mandating prices for 
all kinds of consumer goods. And as the deputy head of the Office of Price Administration, Galbraith was what, what he described in, in his own words, uh, the, the price czar for the, the nation. And it was this experience during World War II with the Office of Price Administration that, that really convinced Galbraith that mandatory price controls can be effective. This is certainly something that very much runs against the thinking of a lot of mainstream economists who are very much wedded to free market ideals. But, but Galbraith really looked to how effectively the Office of Price Administration had kept prices down during World War II, despite all this money that was being pumped into the, uh, the economy. Galbraith, uh, because of his, his role in setting prices during World War II, uh, was accused of having uh, communistic tendencies by conservatives and by other critics of the Office of Price Administration in the United States. But Galbraith was, was definitely anything but a, a communist, uh, like Schlesinger, like the other founding generation of the, uh, the ADA. Uh, he really didn't think that liberal goals could be achieved through through working with uh, with communists. And so both Schlesinger and Galbraith are really shaped by their academic work, their experiences during World War II, and also their, their shared commitment that what they're trying to, to fight for, that it's not going to be achieved through cooperation with the Communist Party or with other political elements in the United States that they see as as illiberal right and it's um it, it's an interesting reflection on the level of interfacing at this time between intellectuals and government well nominally intellectuals these two figures as you as you recounted their their experience in world war ii they're deeply intermeshed with these kind of debates and these kind of you know quite precise ideas about how government operates um to kind of move to the intellectual history of it um one of the key ideas and one of the ideas that really comes up a lot in the first half of the book is this term qualitative liberalism an idea that Schlesinger suggested could return liberalism to its deeper essence you quote um you discuss this concept quite a bit um to quote some of your statements on it you argue it represented a penetrating critique of the foundations of american capitalism but reserved that it proved difficult to define in concrete terms and was characterized by an essentially middle-class orientation what was this idea of qualitative liberalism and what were its legacies uh, within liberal politics and within democratic politics? Yeah, so qualitative liberalism had a really deep intellectual impact on how a lot of post-war liberals were looking at the world around them, even if those liberals didn't necessarily subscribe to all of the specific policy points of, of qualitative liberalism. And this idea for qualitative liberalism originally starts with Arthur Schlesinger Jr., and it comes out of the really devastating losses that Democrats had in the 1952 elections. So in, in 1952, uh, Dwight Eisenhower is elected president, so Republicans have the White House. They also win Congress. They win control of Congress uh, for the first time since the, the coming of the New Deal. That's a, a shock for a lot of Democrats and for a lot of liberals. And because of that really devastating defeat in 1952, Schlesinger is thinking that the New Deal has started to run dry in terms of its electoral appeal, that there has been 
enough material prosperity, enough security, that these basic guarantees of some kind of economic security from the New Deal, that, that they really don't have the kind of appeal that, that they used to. And so he, he starts developing these ideas uh, for electoral reasons, and in large part, to, to get Democrats uh, back, back in power, back in control of Congress and the, uh, the White House. And he offers what really is a pretty provocative assessment that would seem really quite misguided in, in the years to come. When he's developing these ideas about qualitative liberalism, uh, he writes, quote, instead of talking as if the necessities of living, a job, a square meal, a suit of clothes, and a roof were still at stake, we should be able to count that fight one and move on to the more subtle and complicated problem of fighting for individual dignity, identity, and fulfillment in a mass society. So like I said, of course, this, this idea that this fight for, for basic uh, the basic necessities of life. Later on, it becomes pretty clear that 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 fight has has not been won. That there are, in fact, quite a lot of people in the United States living in poverty. But this assumption that uh, Schlesinger and and some of his fellow ADA liberals have leads them to focus not on the the quantitative, so-called quantitative material issues of the New Deal, social security, minimum wage, other uh, economic bread and butter issues. It leads them to focus on this really subjective and slippery notion of quality and the the quality of of life. And so Schlesinger is is quite um, insistent that this qualitative liberalism is not going to replace the quantitative liberalism of the New Deal, but in practice, it's defined uh, against the, the quantitative liberalism of the, uh, the, the New Deal. So while uh, the New Deal has all of these uh, material programs that, that really are talked about in terms of uh, the number of dollars that that are going to uh, to be spent. Schlesinger is talking about prioritizing a, a shared quality of life over economic growth. And so, uh, when I wrote that uh, that this offered a, a penetrating criticism of uh, of American uh, capitalism at the time, it did in the sense that it was challenging this myopic obsession with economic growth that was really defining uh, the really the, the whole political spectrum at the time in, in American politics, and also this emphasis on consumer goods, uh, which really defined a lot of the, uh, the post-war era. So instead of economic growth based on pumping out more consumer goods, Schlesinger is talking about improved education and medical services, more equal opportunities for minorities, better mass media and popular culture, and more deliberate urban planning. Of course, all those things do take money, which are ultimately quantifiable things. So there are some major contradictions here in terms of how he's defining and, and framing qualitative liberalism. Uh, but uh, this, this idea is really developed in contrast to the the quantitative liberalism of the uh, the the new deal yeah that's that's one of the primary tensions um of this work and you see and i'm sure we'll discuss later how this precedes a lot of the divides you see in the democratic party um 
all the way through from this idea from the 1950s through to the 1980s and 1990s and then through to today. Uh, if that's the primary tension of this book, the second tension is what we might call kind of the constituencies of democratic politics, the voter blocks, um, identifying who's voting for the Democratic Party, who's the key electoral targets for the party. Um, for Union Halls to the suburbs, particularly traces kind of this transition from paying attention and listening and prioritizing um, the material concerns of suburban white collar voters, as opposed to the blue collar workers, which of course were key to the New Deal and FDR's coalition in the 1930s. Where did awareness of this suburbanite consistent constituency even come from? And what kind of predisposed the ADA to to want to write off this blue collar support to kind of discount it, particularly considering the political role of unions at this time. And I know this might be quite a tricky question, but did history prove this gamble correct? Yeah, great, great question. So it starts with this this qualitative liberalism that that we've been been talking about. That uh, when it comes to, to Schlesinger and Galbraith and the rest of the ADA, they they certainly didn't think that poverty had been eradicated in the United States and that there were no poor people in the United States. Galbraith uh, always complained about how people misunderstood the title of his book, The Affluent Society, as meaning that uh, everyone in the United States had become uh, had become affluent. But even if they didn't think that poverty had been eradicated, they definitely underestimated the the number of people who were were living in poverty. And that's because they they really set their eyes on the middle class, to, to the people who were living in the suburbs. And so when they looked at those people, the material issues that had really defined the New Deal, they they weren't the pressing issues anymore. And so that's shaping qualitative liberalism. And that's also really reinforcing this, this focus on the uh, the, the middle class that, that begins during during that period. Uh, Schlesinger thought that the prosperity of the produced by the New Deal and by spending during World War II, that that had produced a larger middle class. He thought, um, not not wrongly, that a lot of the people had moved into the middle class, that they didn't they didn't see the ways in which that prosperity was connected to federal programs or the federal government. That people who had become more affluent, tended to think that it was based simply on their own personal efforts, that they had pulled themselves up and were, were now living in the uh, the middle class. And because of that, he comes to think that the New Deal has kind of created its own demise, that the New Deal has led to enough prosperity that people don't think they need something like the New Deal anymore. And so Schlesinger writes in the early 1950s, in the, the wake of this big defeat in, in 1952, that prosperity had cost the Democrats more votes than uh, than McCarthy, that McCarthyism and the uh, the painting of Democrats as soft and communism, that maybe that might have cost some votes, but it's it's prosperity and people moving into the middle class that uh, that really cost more votes. And so Schlesinger has a, a line that he writes about how uh, the economic reforms of previous Democratic administrations had enabled a lot of immigrants and the offspring of immigrants, a, a traditional constituency for the Democratic Party. It had enabled those people to live like Republicans, and as a result, they started voting like Republicans. 
And so Schlesinger is really looking at how to bring them back to the Democratic camp. And he's definitely not alone. The, the ADA more broadly is looking at how to, to reach out to this growing middle class. And, and part of this is rooted in their own personal experience. While the ADA had always been deeply involved in the labor movement and labor unions had been significant financial backers of the ADA, the people who were in the ADA were hardly ever working class. They're middle class or or higher. And so the the lives of working class people really were, were pretty abstract for them in, in most cases. And so this shift to the middle class is starting during the, uh, the 1950s. And then when the Vietnam War starts in the 19, or when the U.S. gets deeply involved in the Vietnam War in the, the mid-1960s, this uh, this focus on the middle class as the best hope for liberalism, it really becomes a lot stronger. And that's because a lot of ADA liberals tended to conflate the views of labor leaders with those of the working class more broadly. So most of the major labor unions were supportive of Lyndon Johnson, the, the president's uh, policies in Vietnam. They were supportive of the war in Vietnam, both because of those unions' own uh, history of anti-communism and because those unions were, were certainly politically dependent on the, the Johnson administration. So the unions tended to, to wholeheartedly support the, the war. And because of that, uh, Galbraith, Schlesinger, other key figures in the ADA, they tended to assume that working class voters had those same views and that they supported the Vietnam War in the same way that major labor leaders did. And Schlesinger uh, really had some, some pretty shocking uh, things that he, he said during this, this period. Uh, he said, uh, he wrote in the, the late 1960s that, quote, the working class wanted to crack down on the N-words, imprison the long-haired college kids, and bomb hell out of the North Vietnamese, while the affluent and be better educated tended to care more about rationality, reform, and progress. So they basically are writing off the working class as uh, hopeless in terms of their position on the, the Vietnam War, and that if there's going to be a political base for bringing an end to the, the US war in, in Vietnam, that it's going to have to come from the middle class because they see the, uh, the working class as uh, content with their material prosperity and happy to throw their lot in with the Johnson administration and the way that it's prosecuting this, this war in, in Vietnam. And so this shift that starts in the 50s, these biases that are already apparent in the 1950s, they really get nailed down in the, the 1960s when the, the Vietnam War becomes the, the center of liberal and political attention more more broadly. Interesting. Interesting. And it's it's the real beauty of this work, I think, just how many of the prevailing tendencies within democratic politics of these years are refracted through the interest and through the figures of this organization. Um, and there's some, you know, as you cited, there's some great quotes um, reflecting on all of that. It's fair to say you're you're fairly keen on the influence of the ADA, its significance. You say in the introduction, for example, um, quote, that it came to wield an influence on American liberalism 
unmatched by any comparable multi-issue organization during the post-war era. That seemed to be somewhat paradoxical for an organization, which you later say never really had more than 50,000 members. I'm curious, what do the ADA's day-to-day operations, particularly at the local level, reveal about the mechanisms of 20th century democratic politics and the operation and feedback loops, if you like, um, among these um, parties and groups? Yeah, the, the ADA is a strange organization in terms of its size, its membership, and the influence that it was able to uh, to wield. Uh, like you mentioned, it was never a large organization, and it always uh, was really quite muddled as to whether it wanted to be a mass organization with a large number of members or if it wanted to be more like the Fabian Society in, in the United Kingdom and have a, a small number of people who could wield a lot of political influence through their, their connections and their, their stature. And in practice, it, it does a little bit of both. It, it never fully settles on doing one or the uh, the other when it comes to how it's going to, to bring its influence to bear on, on politics. The other complicated thing about the ADA is its relationship with the Democratic Party. The, the ADA always insisted that it was nonpartisan, um, although in reality, it, of course, was almost always working with and through the Democratic Party. I mean, that, that was true from the beginning. Uh, but once liberal Republicans became basically an extinct species um, going on later into the, the 20th century, that basically meant that the Democratic Party was the only game in town for the uh, the ADA. And it was the relationship that the ADA had with the Democratic Party that really allowed it to punch above its weight in terms of influence about how it could really shape political debates and how issues were, were framed despite having this this pretty small membership. It was a small membership, but it certainly had, especially at the national level, a membership of people with a lot of connections and a lot of influence and a, a lot of stature. In terms of what the ADA and, and its work and influence can tell us about the, the day-to-day workings of the, the Democratic Party or how this party is influenced by different groups, one thing that we really have to keep in mind is how different the Democratic Party was in the decades after World War II from what it is today. Uh, the, The decades after World War II, the Democratic Party was almost two different parties. You had the Northern Party, which was fairly liberal, and then you had the Southern Party, the the Solid South, uh, that was certainly amongst the, the most conservative and racist political forces in the, the country. And since the ADA didn't have much hope of bringing segregationist Southern Democrats into the liberal fold, they really focused their energy on Northern Democrats. And it's especially in big cities in the North, New York, Boston, Philadelphia, the Northeast in particular, where the ADA really has a lot of influence. And so when when we look at the influence of the ADA and the Democratic Party, 
we can see that in some parts of the country, it has a really significant influence, but then in, in other parts of the country, say, let's say Mississippi in the 1950s, uh, it has no influence or presence uh, what, whatsoever. As far as how this small group of people influenced the, uh, the Democratic Party, they are putting out uh, resolutions and policy papers that become the basis for legislation and other policy initiatives for Democrats. They're also writing a lot of speeches for Democratic politicians and, and candidates. Schlesinger and Galbraith were major speechwriters for Adlai Stevenson and John F. Kennedy. Richard Goodwin was a key speechwriter for uh, for John F. Kennedy. And Joseph Rao, who uh, was one of the, the leading figures in the ADA, he wrote the civil rights speech that Hubert Humphrey gave at the 1948 Democratic National Convention that became the most famous speech that he gave in his entire career. So there's definitely a lot of uh, influence in terms of speech writing, in terms of policy ideas. And as far as what the ADA might tell us about the mechanisms for influencing party politics in the 21st century, one thing that it does tell us is that a small and focused political group with the right connections can have a lot of influence on a major political party. And the way that these members were able to have influence is quite different from what we typically see in the 21st century. When we get further into the 20th century, uh, think tanks really become a major force in American politics. That's true across the political spectrum. That's true for both the Democratic and Republican parties. During the early years after World War II, think tanks really were not on the scene in the way that they would be later on. And so that meant that generalists like the leaders of the ADA, they were able to exercise a lot of the kinds of influence that, uh, that think tanks would later on in the 20th century. And most of the ADA figures who are bringing influence to bear on the Democratic Party, they really are generalists. Uh, they tend to be credentialed. Uh, certainly Arthur Schlesinger and Galbraith uh, were, were prestigious academics with a lot of credentials, but they didn't limit themselves to their, their areas of expertise. Uh, Schlesinger was a historian, and he certainly was writing about and developing policies relating to things that were far afield from the, the study of history. Galbraith was an agricultural historian by training, but he is writing a lot about foreign policy and all kinds of other issues uh, that are really uh, pretty far afield from agricultural uh, economics. And so you do have uh, this period in which some of these figures really can have a lot of influence as generalists. And we, we really don't see that as much with the rise of think tanks where people have pretty narrow areas of expertise that they're that they're focusing on. Interesting. Interesting. And one of the primary areas of the ADA's influence and one of the primary examples of their kind of ideological malleability and how they're able to adapt to comment on new issues and change the position of the organization prior to it would be the Vietnam War. You make a very convincing case that the ADA's um, 
anti-Vietnam dissent was important. It was early, and it's also under-acknowledged in accounts of anti-war uh, dissent in this period. Um, you show kind of the paradoxes of this for an organization that's formed around the basis of vital center, liberalism around support for containment. You say, and this is, a, this is a beautiful turn of phrase, that it turned against the consensus it had helped to create in the first place in that regard. How how did the anti-war movement change the ADA and how did the ADA change the anti-war movement? Yeah, so it is a really ironic development that we see with the ADA in the 1960s, because like I mentioned before, the ADA had come into existence in opposition to Henry Wallace uh, Henry Wallace's cooperation with communists, and also Henry Wallace's call for a more cooperative relationship with the Soviet Union. And so it comes into existence as a very hardline anti-communist organization that really is pivotal in, in establishing anti-communist containment as a pillar of post-war American liberalism. They, they certainly are at the fore of insisting that anywhere where communists might be coming to power anywhere in the world, uh, the United States needs to be, to be jumping on that and uh, trying to, to put that down uh, before the, the spread of this, this communist monolith that they believe in during the, uh, the 19, 1950s. When we get to the 60s, this really all begins to change, and it's not because of the influence of the anti-war movement. Uh, the ADA liberals are very resistant uh, to what they see, especially in the early anti-war movement. The, the early anti-war movement uh, is more radical in its orientation. Uh, there are a lot of college students. It's uh, certainly... Uh, influenced by the new left in, in a lot of ways. And the, the vital center perspective that, that you mentioned before, this idea that the ADA's form of liberalism is the responsible center and that uh, the right and the, the left are basically both hysterical and, and irresponsible, that basically leads ADA liberals to, uh, to shut down uh, any kind of reception from the, the new left. They are not interested in working with the new left, and they're not interested in the ideas that the new left has about the Vietnam War. So when the, the new left is saying that the uh, U.S. war in Vietnam is a result of American imperialism and corporate interests, uh, the ADA are, are not interested in, in those ideas or arguments uh, at all, really. What changes their thinking is their recognition of polycentric communism in the, the 1960s. So they really pay a lot of attention to what's happening in the communist world, the, the Sino-Soviet split, uh, the fact that you have different communist states pursuing different national policies. And that's really significant for them because if you have a polycentric communist world, that means that if communists come to power in a particular country, that that's not an automatic extension of Soviet or Chinese power. Uh, from, from their perspective, they, they certainly are not keen 
on communism. They think that that's bad for the the people who are living in in that country, be it in in Vietnam or or wherever. But they don't think that that presents any kind of genuine security threat to the United States. It's not necessarily bolstering the power of the uh, the Soviet yes. Union. And so when they apply that thinking to the war in Vietnam, they really come to see the war in Vietnam uh, not as a, a fight between the communist world and the, the free world, but they see it as a civil war in Vietnam that's going to determine what kind of government Vietnam has. And from their perspective, that's ultimately not that important of an issue for the United States. And so that leads them to abandon this reflexive anti-communist instinct that really had propelled them earlier. Uh, They think that the U.S. response in Vietnam, this massive escalation of U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War, that that is actually a lot more dangerous to the United States than the prospect of communists coming to power in Vietnam. And so they, they really... Uh, become critical of this war, but ultimately for quite different reasons from a lot of the anti-war movement. And also because of this vital center perspective that we've been talking about, they really don't involve themselves in the demonstrations that are driving the anti-war movement. Uh, they, They don't want to be involved in demonstrations where people are calling for unilateral withdrawal or where people are flying Viet Cong flags. They think that that's going to be more harmful for bringing the war to an end than than it's going to be be helpful. And of course, the the challenge in a public demonstration is you can't control who's going to join that demonstration. And so that makes it uh, really impossible, um, based on the ADA's politics, to involve itself in the anti-war movement. So the anti-war movement doesn't have a tremendous impact on the ADA in terms of its thinking on the war, but the ADA does have an impact on the anti-war movement in terms of creating an opening for political electoral opposition to the Vietnam War. So in, in 1968, uh, the war is is about at its peak in terms of the number of U.S. troops that are in Vietnam. U.S. dissatisfaction with the war is, is growing. Lyndon Johnson is running for re-election as president. And Eugene McCarthy, who was not an incredibly well-known uh, senator from Minnesota, he decides to challenge Johnson in the Democratic primaries uh, on the basis of the Vietnam War. He's opposed to the Johnson administration policies in the Vietnam War. The ADA endorses McCarthy at a very early stage. They're the the first national organization that's not focused on a a particular issue that uh, then endorses McCarthy. They really helped to get McCarthy's campaign off the ground because it didn't necessarily look like it was, was going anywhere. This eventually causes Johnson to pull out of the the primaries. Uh, Robert Kennedy enters the primaries pretty shortly after that. And with the campaigns of Kennedy and McCarthy, there's finally a way for opponents to the Vietnam War 
to express that opposition with their ballots. There's a, a means for electoral opposition to the war uh, that the anti-war movement no longer is simply just demonstrations. People can, can vote with their ballot uh, as well as with their feet. And so that's definitely uh, a big way in which the ADA uh, helps to reorient and and shape the uh, the anti-war movement during the the late 1960s yeah and these anti-war movements the debates over the war in vietnam they they never exist in isolation right there's always an interplay of domestic and international concerns for the ada um not in the least due to the fact that the civil rights movement is um increasing awareness of a lot of the problems in american life and casting doubt, let's say, on this kind of vision of faith in American capitalism and um, the restorative and healing and equalizing powers of economic growth. You argue by the late 1960s, um, the phrase you use here, the ADA took a social democratic concern. I'd be interested to hear what that um, what that turn, even social democratic turn, what's that social democratic turn looks like what kind of policy proposals were the result of it and, and what happened to it? Did it succeed or did it fail um, in influencing kind of the larger trajectory of democratic politics in this time? Yeah. So the, the civil rights movement has a really big impact on a lot of ADA liberals when it comes to their thinking about domestic issues. The, uh, the ADA uh, was a predominantly white organization, but they're really... Uh, influenced by the positions that civil rights organizations are taking. And one of the things the civil rights movement really does is it makes ADA liberals aware of poverty uh, again, this uh, overconfidence that they had had during the 1950s about the reach of American prosperity that's really not tenable by the 1960s when the civil rights movement is, is shining the light on the number of people who are uh, living uh, without the, the material needs of, of life, and especially disproportionately the number of Black people who are living in poverty. And so this really causes ADA liberals to focus a lot on their relationship between economic inequality and racial inequality. And ADA liberals uh, really start to doubt that economic growth is going to solve all of these problems alone. It's been pretty clear that despite decades of economic growth at this point, that a lot of people, especially a lot of Black people, have been left behind. And so this causes ADA liberals to take this, this more social democratic turn where the federal government is going to play a much more central role in providing income and jobs to people. It's not going to be just private industry that's uh, that's that's providing for uh, for American uh, people. And uh, this really shapes how they're thinking about the Vietnam War as well. Uh, ADA liberals were already opposed to the Vietnam War, or at least many ADA liberals were opposed to the Vietnam War. But when it becomes clear that the Vietnam War is sapping money that could be used for all of these domestic purposes for programs that might help to close the uh, the economic uh, inequality gaps that exist, especially the, the racial disparities that exist in terms of economic inequality, that really leads them to double down on their opposition to the Vietnam War. They don't think any progress is going to be made 
on these social democratic initiatives while the country is pouring billions and billions of dollars into this war in Vietnam. As far as this vision and the degree of success that it has or, or doesn't have, this vision does not succeed. It, it fails, and it fails in part because the middle class voters that the ADA was looking to as the future of, of liberalism that, that we've been talking about, those middle class voters didn't turn out to be dependable supporters of social democratic policies. Middle class activists and voters had expressed support for a variety of social democratic policies from uh, guaranteed jobs to guaranteed income in the midst of a civil rights movement that was revealing the economic inequality that underpinned a lot of the racial inequality that exists in the country. But when the e economic situation gets worse in the United States during the 1970s, when there's a recession, when stagflation sets in, a lot of the middle class quickly abandons those social democratic commitments. And at the same time, the ADA had distanced itself from the labor movement because the labor unions had been supporting the Vietnam War. And the, the labor unions, whatever their position on the Vietnam War, uh, they were the most powerful political force in the country with any kind of genuine commitment to social democracy. So the ADA has distanced itself from a force that, that might be able to fight for its social democratic policies. And it's really putting its eggs in the basket of a middle class that uh, really is not going to stick around in the long term for supporting these social democratic policies. As far as the, the longer legacy of this social democratic turn, this vision definitely does not come to fruition during the, the 1960s or 1970s, but this vision for social democratic solutions to poverty in the United States, it definitely doesn't disappear entirely. From Ted Kennedy's challenge to Jimmy Carter in the 1980 Democratic primaries to Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Coalition and his multiple runs for the presidency, this social democratic legacy of the ADA it continues to resurface. And when Bernie Sanders runs for president in 2016, he's able to, to tap into that tradition in a lot of ways. The, the media frequently framed his politics and his positions at the time as kind of coming out of nowhere. But part of the reason why he was able to be more successful than certainly people expected when he first launched his campaign in, in 2015 was that he was tapping into this tradition that even if it had been submerged for quite a while, it did have roots in American politics and, and really in the, the heart of the American liberal tradition that, that stretched back for, for quite a few years. And one of the, uh, let's call it the most prominent um, political repercussions of this kind of intellectual political um divide of the 1960s is what you call the new politics movement this is a key term throughout really the whole second half um of the book for those who maybe haven't heard of this term before like myself before reading this book actually uh, what was the new politics movement and 
how does kind of centering it and framing our understandings of late 20th century politics around this movement um, alter our understandings of these years? Yeah, and you're, you're definitely not alone for for having not heard of that that term. It's not a term that we tend to hear much these days, but the new politics really is a vital thread that connects the liberalism of the post-war era to what liberalism becomes in the late 20th century and the early 21st century. So the the new politics, this movement, it emerges alongside Eugene McCarthy's 1968 presidential campaign. It later really coalesces around the presidential campaign of George McGovern in 1972. It takes shape in 1968 out of what is initially a really focused desire to mount a challenge to the Vietnam War through the existing, so rather than uh, mounting a third party challenge, rather than demonstrations in the the streets, uh, the hope is that you can challenge the Vietnam War through the traditional two-party system that that exists in the United States. And that's the spark that initially puts the new politics into motion. Ultimately, it comes to encompass a whole lot more than than just the the Vietnam War. It, It expands its foreign policy gaze beyond the Vietnam War itself and looks at the broader Cold War national security state and people involved in the the new politics movement begin to argue uh, correctly that even if the United States pulls out of Vietnam, these enormous defense budgets are going to make it impossible to, to do social reform or have any kind of social democratic initiatives uh, at home. There's a broader challenge to this interventionist foreign policy that Democrats and Republicans really had, had both agreed with going back to uh, the the years after World War II. There's a call for a more participatory system of party politics that grows out of what happens in 1968, uh, where Hubert Humphrey, who had been Johnson's vice president, he becomes the Democratic nominee in 1968, despite having barely competed in any of the primaries. He's able to to go to the convention and basically uh, corral delegates into nominating him uh, for, for the presidency. So there's a desire to have a party machinery that's more participatory, where regular activists and voters can have a meaningful influence on who the party's nominee is going to to be. It also places a lot of emphasis on these social democratic approaches to poverty that we've been talking about. And it also starts to express a far-reaching politics of race, gender, and sexuality, or what ultimately gets uh, termed identity politics by, by a lot of people. And one thing that centering the new politics really helps us to do is to not only understand how liberalism got to where it is in the, the 21st century, but also the, the tensions that, that really run through liberalism today. The new politics movement from really its very beginning had exhibited a tension between costly social democratic approaches to poverty, things like uh, guaranteed income, guaranteed jobs provided by the, uh, the federal government, 
that's what it's focusing on on one side. On the other side, it's also putting a lot of emphasis on social and cultural issues that definitely don't require as much in the way of tax dollars and public spending. During the 60s and 70s, those tensions had been really mitigated by the focus on the Vietnam War. So even if people in the movement didn't agree on whether these social democratic solutions should be emphasized or whether social and cultural issues should be emphasized, they could really all get on board and work together because they've shared this uh, really big commitment to opposing the Vietnam War. But when the Vietnam War ends, those tensions really become a lot more visible. And in the 1980s, with Reagan in the White, in the White House, the, the Reagan Revolution slashing the, the federal budget, you have the emergence of a group of young Democrats who come to be called Atari Democrats or, or neoliberals. So they are uh, associated with uh, high-tech entrepreneurship and the success that Atari and Apple Computer and, and other Silicon Valley companies are having in the, uh, the 80s. And people like Gary Hart, who was a senator from Colorado, Senator Paul Songus from, from Massachusetts, they settle this tension between costly social democratic measures on one hand and social and cultural issues on the other by focusing just on the social and cultural issues. And that's where you really get the ground set for the New Democrats and Bill Clinton later on in the 1990s, where they really try to detach these social and cultural issues from the economic progressivism that had also been a major part of the new politics movement. Right, right. And that's that all kind of attests to the focus of this work on the ADA's continuing influence into the 1970s and 1980s, which you um, know quite a few times throughout the book is kind of the main claim um, to novelty um, compared to past scholarship revealing that influence. It's fair to say you tackle some of the most contentious and widely debated terms in recent democratic um, politics in this work, things like, as you say, identity politics, things like the rise of neoliberalism. Um, to put it simply, and this is kind of um, cutting over a lot of ground, I appreciate that. Um, what is at stake in kind of revealing the ADA's influences um, in precipitating these debates and precipitating these arguments and um, ideas, particularly given, you know, as we discussed at the beginning, how, how many of these tensions follow from tensions you spots right back to the 1950s. Yeah, I think there's a lot more at stake than, than just the ADA itself. This isn't just a matter of setting the record right as far as the institutional history of the uh, the ADA. Um, but you mentioned before the the prevailing understanding of the ADA and its leaders, and that that was basically that by the late 60s, by the 1970s, Schlesinger, Galbraith, the rest of the, the major figures in the ADA, that they basically were a bunch of old fogies who were really out of touch, that they really didn't have much to do with what was happening in, in liberal or, or democratic politics during the, uh, the period. And what we get when we understand the way that they continued to influence uh, liberalism and the Democratic Party in, in that period 
is we really pushed back against this idea that liberalism was primarily transformed by the influence of the new left. So when we look at the new politics movement, a lot of the scholarship on the new politics movement basically paints the new politics as a kind of watered down version of the new left that's that's cleaned up for entry into electoral politics. And part of the reason why that was a big assumption in a lot of the historiography has to do with this declension narrative in the historiography of post-war liberalism. A lot of the scholarship, until recently, there's a lot of really good stuff that's come out in the past few years, but until the past few years, the story was always one of inevitable liberal decline and conservative ascendancy, that basically the whole story just takes 1980 and the Reagan revolution as its uh, assumed endpoint. Uh, and the, the job is to explain how you get to that endpoint in, in 1980. And that declension narrative led to the view that liberalism was not capable of meeting the challenges of the civil rights and Vietnam War era. And because it wasn't able to meet these new social, economic, and political challenges, the changes that occurred in liberalism didn't come from within the liberal tradition. They came from the new left, which entered into democratic politics and changed this uh, this liberal tradition in, in important ways during the, the 60s and, and the 70s. But if we accept that the ADA, which continued to be really this quintessential representative of American liberalism, that it continued to, to be relevant and that they are driving a lot of these changes and that these changes are coming from within the liberal tradition, we get an understanding of how liberalism changed from the inside, that these changes that get us from the Cold War liberalism of the late 1940s to what liberalism has become in the 21st century, that that's not a result simply of the new left sort of stealthily coming into liberal and democratic politics and causing that, that transformation to happen. Really interesting. Really interesting. And if I could sneak an impromptu quick question in, in here. I, I just wondered, as you were saying that, whether writing and researching this book made you more optimistic or pessimistic about the state of democratic politics. Um, as I put in my, my written question, um, and as uh, a name we've already said today, Bernie Sanders, this work ends and starts with him and his economic progressivism, which you argue um, owed quite a lot to the social democratic legacy of the new politics movement. And the ADA. Um, so I'd wonder, looking at contemporary landscape today, A, does this make you more optimistic or pessimistic about democratic politics? And B, if there were any kind of message, implication, lesson of this story, this narrative, the history of the ADA, um, that you would like to convey to people engaged in these debates today, um, what that might possibly be? Yeah, I mean, I guess to answer the, the question about optimism first, it's it's hard for me to be too optimistic about anything in, in, in American politics to today. Uh, but Bernie Sanders uh, certainly was the source of optimism when when his campaign was launched in in 20 uh, in 2016. And for me, that's because he brought back this legacy of economic progressivism that that for years, 
uh, going back to the neoliberal Atari Democrats of the 80s, the new Democrats and Bill Clinton in the 1990s, and then Obama really carrying a lot of that on during the, the 21st century, American liberalism really was defined by social and cultural issues, uh, legal rights for same-sex marriage, uh, legal access to abortion, uh, which are all important things, but don't really cost much in terms of, of public money. And the return of economic progressivism has reintroduced this, this tension that, that we've been talking about. But I think that it's incredibly important for making those social and cultural causes uh, meaningful. Uh, so uh, when it comes to uh, these, these social and cultural uh, causes that have defined a lot of American liberalism since the, the 1980s, one takeaway that I would hope a lot of people get from this, this book is that those uh, causes, those issues, they're, they're ultimately not as meaningful as they can be without the economic justice that's needed to, to make those rights and, and those issues meaningful. So if you if you go back to the, to the civil rights movement, uh, there was always talk about how desegregating lunch counters is incredibly important. And that's what, what the movement wants to do. But that if Black people are too poor to be able to afford a hamburger at that lunch counter, it's ultimately not incredibly meaningful for them whether or not they have a legal right to sit at that lunch counter. So certainly one thing I would hope that people take away uh, is the uh, the need for economic progressivism and economic justice uh, to really make some of these other causes meaningful in the, the lives of people. Wow. Wow. And these debates will keep going, I'm sure, in the head of a presidential election. Yeah, I'm sure we'll hear a lot along these kind of lines and these kind of um, questions. Um, well, the word moves on you do as well with your research i'm wondering what's next for you and your research after this um project yeah so the the ed liberals that i looked at in this book along with a lot of intellectuals from across the political spectrum during the 60s and 70s they conceived of the growing ranks of college students and white collar middle class professional workers as a new class so they they thought of the middle class that was coming into uh, fruition during those years as different from the old middle class of shopkeepers and the the petty bourgeoisie. And certainly some people were critical of this this new class. Uh, neoconservatives wrote a lot about how how terrible they were. But a lot of liberals, both within and, and outside of the ADA, they saw this new class as the future social base for American liberalism. So with my my next project, I'm planning on further examining the ideas that surrounded the new class during this, this period and comparing how those ideas, those theories, and those assumptions compared to the way the politics of the new class played out in, in practice. And so I'm planning on doing that by probing the political history of Los Alamos, New Mexico. This was a city that was established by the Manhattan Project during World War II. It's still the site of a large federal nuclear research lab. Los Alamos isn't big in terms of its population. It only has about 13,000 people, but the lab there employs about 90% of the people in the city. And because of that, it has 
the highest per capita number of PhDs of any locality in the United States. And so in some ways, it's the most new class city anywhere in the, the country. So I'm, I'm hoping to use Los Alamos as a case study to see how some of these ideas play out in, in the real world of politics. That's fascinating. And um, we really look forward to hearing more about that project. Uh, well, thank you very much, um, Professor Scott Kamen. I've taken enough of your time today. I'm sure you've got that fascinating project to be getting on with. But thank you for appearing on New Books in American Studies today. And congratulations on From Union Hall to Suburbs, uh, which again, will be available from the University of Massachusetts Press from this November, November 2023. Uh, thank you very much, um, Scott. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for listening to New Books in American Studies. Thank you.